0: Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible and your notepad ready to go because we're about to get started with today's message. This morning, I'm going to share with you from, there it is, Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to look at the first 10 verses of this chapter, and we're talking about the preeminence of Jesus' priesthood through the order of Melchizedek, and if that all sounded confusing to you, that's all right. Um, we'll get there. Uh, preeminence being better, greater, more than uh, than anything else, and then we'll share with you a little bit about who Melchizedek is, and why does the author of Hebrews highlight this so much, Um, but before we do that, kind of the the question I wanted to ask you this morning is, uh, if you were to consider your appetites, what, what are they? Obviously, we have physical appetites, right? And so I know one of my negative physical appetites is around 9 o'clock every night, I have this urge to go find all the food that I shouldn't eat any time of day, but especially right before bed, right? You start thinking about ice cream and potato chips and whatever else you... Well not together, but I mean, maybe together. But anyway, you start thinking about all those different things, and that's probably not the best appetite. Obviously, there are some healthy appetites we have f- physically as well. But have you ever considered your your emotional appetite? Uh, that you as a person have a desire within you to experience certain things, to, to know peace, to be happy, to uh, uh, maybe maybe one of the things you do in your appetite is, is like certain foods you completely avoid anything that would cause you to feel negative and so you're just totally avoiding anything difficult. If something difficult were given to you, you'd avoid it like broccoli, right? Um, and so you kind of have a, an emotional aversion to do anything that, that's hard. Um, have you ever considered your spiritual appetites? Uh, that you as a person actually have spiritual appetites, that God has built those into you, just like those other things. And as we talk about this, you might wonder why would I need a priest? Um, I don't know about you, but, but like I never think to myself, gosh, I should go see the priest. Um, maybe you do think that, maybe you have a religious background that makes you think that way, but that's just not a part of the way that my mind operates. Um, but the fact of the matter is that the scriptures, they assume that we do need a priest. And what a priest would do is be a representative between, uh, f- from, from the people to God. And there are certain things that we should have appetites for, like knowing the holiness of God. Uh, to understand who God is to understand his perfection holiness is actually kind of a it's a wonderful thing because we would love to be close to uh, someone who is perfect in all of his ways and all of his works but it's also a frightening thing because it would then certainly uncover the areas where we are imperfect right Uh, what about a, a desire to know the seriousness of sin to be able to look at sin for what it is and Call it out for what it is and see it in yourself. Um, Is that something that's a part of you or would you just avoid the idea of sin? There are a lot of people who would look at sin and say, you know, this is one of the parts of the Bible. I don't know about it. Uh, I think we're all just fine the way that we are. Um, What about what about atonement and how does it happen atonement is a is a principle of being justified being made right having all of your sin washed away and then given right standing with God. Do you have have an appetite for right standing with God to be justified. Um, How about an appetite for proximity to God to be at peace with God to know him. Um, to be made right and then to have peace with God, Uh, not to have a divide between you and God, but for there to be this nearness that you have with him, uh, is that an appetite for you? How about the transference of his holiness to you? His perfection in all of his ways and all of his works. As we're near to him, he will actually transfer that holiness to us through his Holy Spirit living in us, causing us to live in his ways and live his works out in the world around us and to receive a blessing and be a blessing. You know, do you have an appetite for these things? Um, maybe, maybe you would say some of them, yes. Some of them I've never really even thought about. Uh, But these are the areas where we, we need a priest someone that brings us into God's presence to allow us to experience and know the holiness of God, to reveal the seriousness of our sin and and then have it washed away so that we could be atoned and made right and then we could be close to God, not far off from Him, but actually within His presence. The last chapter that we looked at, some of the last verses says that Jesus has become our anchor within the sanctuary of God, that He has anchored us as Christians there. And then he's gonna transfer that holiness to us. He's gonna cause us to live a different way, receive a blessing and be a blessing. Now, the way that the author of Hebrews is going to describe what the ultimate priesthood is, is he's going to describe it through the person of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Now, that's a name that you go, maybe, if you're a Christian, you've, you've probably heard it. If you're familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard that name, but you might not have. And there are some names in the Bible that, you know, the author of Hebrews, he could have chose so many different stories to make his point here about Jesus's priesthood, but through the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's led to Melchizedek. And so... We first meet him in Genesis chapter 14. So I want to read with you Genesis chapter 14, not all of it. I'll give you a a summary of the first 16 verses. The first 16 verses are that there's essentially a rebellion in the land, and there's a group of kings that are going to rebel against their overlord king. And in the process of that, this overlord king squashes the rebellion, and Abraham, he's Abram at this point. His name hasn't been changed by God. Uh, Abram, his... Nephew lot is taken in this crushing of a rebellion along with his family and everything else Abraham finds out that this has taken place and he gathers more than 300 of his own trained warriors and they go and defeat These kings and release these captives and then at that point in time in verse 17 It says after Abraham returned from defeating uh, This guy and the kings that were with him. I'm not gonna try and say it "Um, The king of Sodom went out to meet him in Shev Valley, that is, the king's valley, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest to the God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by the God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And Blessed be the God most high who has handed over your enemies to you and Abram gave him a tenth of everything So this is where we first meet Melchizedek as he comes out and he offers a blessing. He gives a blessing to Abram Then the king of Sodom said to Abram give me the people but you take the possessions for yourself But Abram said to the king of Sodom. I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that belongs to you so that you can never say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except for what the servants have eaten, but as for the share of the men who came with me, they can take their share. So let me show you kind of what's going on here. We have a classic confrontation that's given as an archetype. And so we have the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Sodom in the Hebrew actually means destruction or and desolation. And so the king of Sodom is the king of destruction and desolation. He's known for his land being a place of idolatry, worshiping the creation over the creator, and those practices that are against God's heart. And what's interesting is the king of darkness and destruction, desolation, What is he he do? He offers Abram a deal, right? He says, if you do this, I'll do that. And then the king of peace, uh, the king of Salem and the king of righteousness, he shows up in the person of Melchizedek and he represents God's heart. And instead of offering a deal, he gives a blessing. This is a distinct difference between having a relationship with the world and darkness and having a relationship with God. Uh, what, what, what darkness and desolation is going to do is it's going to try, try and make a deal with you. If you do these things, I'll give you this right? It tries to make a deal with you. But what God does is he shows up and he gives a blessing. It's unconditional, not based upon our actions, but just out of the goodness of who he is. And so this classic confrontation, it provides this archetype. We're all positioned to make a choice on what king we follow and what kingdom we pay allegiance to. We we are encouraged by the text, like Abram, to make an oath not to take a thread that belongs to the kingdom of destruction and desolation, instead to receive a blessing by knowing the king of peace and of righteousness. And so maybe this is a question you need to answer this morning is have you made a deal with desolation and darkness based upon your works and your performance to receive certain things or are you receiving blessing from God? Because what I'm gonna show you is is that forms of religious practices that men, that people have come up with, they're always a deal. If you do this, you'll receive this. If you work hard enough, you'll be accepted by God, right? And that's what, that's what we fall into. We fall into practices that say, if you do these things, we'll make a deal with you. And then based upon how you perform, you can get something from the deal that you make. And what God does is totally the opposite of that. He shows up and he says, out of his goodness and out of his love, he's just gonna bless you. He's just gonna, out of, out of what's called grace, give you what you don't deserve. And what we're called to do is say, where is my allegiance? Am I I making a deal with darkness? Am I making a deal with the world around me? Or am I turning to God and saying thank you? Seeking blessing. Now, there's a little bit more about Melchizedek that the first century Jewish mind would have thought. Uh, They would have used Melchizedek as a symbol for the logos. So these aren't necessarily biblical views, but these are views that were were prevalent among first century Jewish people that the author of Hebrews is writing to. Now, the logos we know from the Gospel of John was a very common way for the Greek mind, and then it influenced the Jewish mind, to say "There's there's an overarching truth that exists, and it's manifested in certain ways. And so the Greek people, they would have said the logos was manifested in philosophy or experience. The Jewish people would have seen it expressed in in the Old Testament and, and in the person of, of Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. What John, uh, the author of, of John's gospel, what he draws to us to see is that the logos is actually manifested in the person of Jesus, that the overarching truth that is the absolute truth of all things is made real to us in the person of and work of Jesus Christ and so they actually saw Melchizedek as a symbol of this it's interesting we don't know who the author of Hebrews is but as I read it more I kind of wonder if it was a collaboration because there are parts of it that really sound like John and there are parts of it that really sound like Paul and there are parts of it that really sound like somebody else there's uh, we don't know but I'm starting to wonder if they came together and wrote this we don't know but I'm wondering Another thing for Melchizedek is that he was a, a symbol, or the, the year of the Jubilee, which in the Jewish calendar, every fifty years, all these debts were forgiven, all these different things take place. The land got a rest. They did it in cycles of seven, but there was also this fifty that took place, and they called that the year of Melchizedek. That was found in the Qumran, which is writings of the Essenes. Found same place we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, another view of Melchizedek that he brings deliverance and salvation. He was a victor over Satan and his evil spirits. A lot of people viewed him as a heavenly figure, perhaps an angel. Uh, the book of Second Enoch, which is a apocryphal or extra biblical book written by Jewish people around that time, uh, say that he, saved, he was saved from the flood to continue a line of priests that was started by Seth. And Seth is an ancestor of Noah. His name means appointed one as a replacement for Abel. And so these are some of the views that they had of Melchizedek, that he's carrying on a special priestly line, uh, that he was a heavenly figure, that he defeats Satan and his evil spirits, he brings deliverance and salvation. In the year of Jubilee, he brings great joy and restoration to the people, and that he was a symbol of the Logos. And so what's interesting is what the author of Hebrews does is he says, those are all really interesting views. Let me help you take it a step further and show you how he is actually... A archetype or a type of Christ. And so in Hebrews chapter 7, it says this For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means the king of righteousness, then also the king of Salem or the king of peace. Without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So let me show you some places where Jesus and Melchizedek overlap. They are the king of righteousness the king of, and the king of peace. Righteousness is to do God's will and his works. It's to think like God, it's to speak like God, it's to behave like God in the, what he says is right and wrong. And then he's also the king of peace. It's interesting when we see righteousness and peace within the scriptures, you have to understand that righteousness precedes peace. You cannot have peace without righteousness and so to seek peace without God's ways. You'll never find it Maybe you can't find peace Maybe you're you, you there's just a constant unsettled in your life um, and, and and I'm not guaranteeing it, but it is worth saying am I seeking peace without sinking righteousness Am I, am I treating other people wrong and yet, yet looking for peace? Am I, am I ignoring God and trying to have peace? All right, you can't, it doesn't work. Righteousness precedes peace. You, you won't feel at peace in life until God's ways and his will are being, are, until you're seeking those things. But Jesus and Melchizedek are described as the king of righteousness and the king of peace. A priest of the most high God and a priest forever. Uh, we see that, that Jesus and Melchizedek do these things of representing the people to God and drawing them into close relationship and showing them how to have salvation and bringing them freedom and justifying them, all these things. Uh, it says that he has neither a beginning nor an end of, end of days. That doesn't mean that he, he didn't have it, but it wasn't recorded in the Scriptures. Um, the other thing we see about Melchizedek is when he shows up to Abraham, he shows up with bread and wine. It's one of the first places in the scriptures we see God being worshiped with bread and wine. Uh, the next place that we really see it in a prevalent way is Joseph. And, and if you read the story of Joseph in Genesis, there's all these places where Jesus, is, or, uh, where we see Jesus in the actions and in the person of Joseph. But he's one of the next places that you see bread and wine. And then we see it in the in the Passover elements of, of bread and wine. And ultimately, ultimately, Jesus picks things up and shows how they've always been pointing to his sacrifice uh, of himself for us to be saved. Um, they they both receive the homage of Abraham I don't want to say worship but they receive the homage of Abraham Uh, Jesus says in John chapter 8 he's talking to a crowd of Jewish people and they're asking him about why his authority and how he can say what he says and he tells them Abraham saw his day and rejoiced and then he tells them before Abraham was I am and they pick up stones to kill him because they believe it to be blasphemy as a claim of being equal with God But they both received this homage from Abraham. And the other thing is that they're both not from the tribe of of Levi, which to the Jewish reader, they would have gone. The only place that priests come from is from the line of Aaron, Aaron, the tribe of Levi. That's where priests come from. Jesus can't be a priest. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah, which is where kings come from. What God does is he shows them that Jesus is both a king and a priest, a king from the line of Judah and a priest from the line of Melchizedek who lives forever and his priesthood never Ends. Okay, so these are very unique things about these two. Uh, Jesus and Melchizedek, many many theologians believe that this is a Christophany or a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, that before he took on flesh, he could appear within human history, and there are places in the scriptures where that's obviously what happened. This one isn't as clear, and so is this a Christophany or a, a type of Christ? And so I think the key word here for us to understand this is resembling in verse 3. The Greek word means to make like, make similar, to be comparable with. It leads to typology rather than a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus or Christophany but there is a very but there are very good Bible scholars who believe that this is the case what's important for us to recognize is that God is revealing himself in personal and meaningful ways he guides us away from darkness and destruction Sodom and to righteousness and peace and he's doing this for you and i as well. He he is manifesting himself in our lives in very personal and meaningful ways and what he does for us every time among other things but he's always going to do this. He's going to lead you away from sin and desolation and destruction and to righteousness and peace. He's going to lead you to not think like uh, those that are opposed to him and living in, a, in an offensive way towards God, but he's and make a deal with that but instead of making a deal with darkness he's going to lead you to righteousness his ways his thinking and to peace and so if you're willing to look at your life i want you to i want you to see the places where god is doing this for you he's revealing himself to you in meaningful and personal ways he's calling you away from your sin to be saved from it, to be justified by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then to live in his ways and for his works so that you can be at peace with him and other people. That's what he's doing. He's doing that for you. He's doing that for me. Meaningful and personal ways. What are they for you? How is he making himself meaningful and personal to you? Are you paying attention to his voice? Are you you allowing him to lead you? Do you have an appetite to be led by God? Uh, Is your spiritual appetite for him or is it against him? And that's what this passage is causing us to question here. He goes on and he describes how great Melchizedek is. He says, now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers and sisters, though they have also descended from. Abraham. So he's drawing out the principle of the Old Testament tithe and giving a tenth. We'll talk about that in a moment. But really what he's doing here is he's saying, why would you return to the priesthood of Aaron when a greater priesthood has arrived? You know that you need help in your reconciliation with God through someone working on your behalf to save you from your sin through a sacrifice. So why would you go back to sacrifices that are given again and again and again and again to recurring payments when the payment has already been made in full? Why would you do that? Jesus has died once for all to save us from sin. Uh, His death on the cross is sufficient to pay for all of your sin, past, present, and future. There's no more work for you to be done. You need to understand that. That as far as your debt with God is concerned because of sin, it is paid in full. There's no more debt to be paid. That means that from a religious standpoint, there's nothing you could do to earn salvation, and so why would you do rituals and different things and view them as recurring payments? Oh no, I sinned, I guess I better say a handful of prayers, I guess I better go through this sacrifice again, I guess I better go through some penance, I guess I better do some magic words here so that God will be happy with me. That's not what the Bible teaches us. Right? Uh, Where salvation is secured by the work of Jesus Christ as a gift of God. And this is where religion has turned into a deal with darkness rather than receiving God's blessing. It is a deal with darkness to believe that your recurring payments will cause you to be right with God. That is a deal with darkness. It is sin and it leads to destruction rather than receiving blessing from God. And this is what all the cults of Christianity do. They tell you that your righteousness and right standing before God is dependent upon your recurring payments and works rather than the free gift and blessing of God giving you life so which one have you made a deal with? Are you approaching God from a standpoint of I'm earning this and when I mess up, I do what I need to do uh, in a works-based system to be right with you again? The scriptures don't teach us to do that. They do tell us in First John that if you believe you don't have sin in you, then you're lying to yourself. But if you would like to recover from sin, the way to do it is to confess that sin, to, to agree with God that what you did was wrong and then receive from him forgiveness and right standing, he's going to give that to you. It's a gift, not something that you earn. And so you, could, you have to understand that this is part of being a Christian. Once you, once you make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, you're still going to be tempted. The reader of this was tempted to go back to their old ways of worship, which were more culturally acceptable, and to just kind of go with the flow rather than follow Jesus Christ and remain steadfast in him. Instead of abiding in Christ, they were being pulled away into the ways of the world and making a deal with the world. And so what, uh, what we're being called to do is to not do that, but instead to remain united to Jesus Christ, to seek, to seek our relationship with him, not based upon what we can do, but based upon who he is. This is what the chapter, of the sixth chapter of Romans reveals to us, is that the way to deal with temptation, the way to deal with sin and to have victory over sin is that it tells us to do three things. It tells us to know, to reckon, and yield, we need to know who God has made us and what he has done for us. So I'm tempted to sin and I go, hold on, I know who God has made me. I'm his child. I understand what he's done for me. I understand the new identity that he's given me, that I've been buried with him and raised with him to newness of life. And so why on earth would I do this? I'm going to add it up. I'm going to reckon the truth to be that the right thing to do would be to live for God's will and practice his ways so that I could be living a life that's a blessing rather than something that's constantly dragging me down. So I'm going to know the truth. I'm going to reckon the truth. I'm going to add it up. And then I'm going to yield myself to the spirit of God and allow him to lead me. And that's, that's God's, if you're struggling in a pattern of sin where you're tempted, you give in, you confess you try harder, it doesn't work. You confess, you, you sin, you try harder, it doesn't work. He's telling you, no, I mean, he'll forgive you because he's gracious but his, his pattern for you to win and have victory over sin is to know the truth of who Jesus Christ and what he's done, who he's made you, the life that is within you, to reckon that to be the truth, and then say, God, I trust you. I yield my body to you for righteousness. I want you to lead me. And that's victory. You'll defeat sin. Not because you can defeat sin, but because you've yielded yourself to the one who has all the power. And so why would you go to a form of salvation that's dependent upon recurring payments for debt when it's already been paid? Now, this practice of giving a tenth, this was a way of thanking and recognizing God as the giver of all, given as first fruits or before using material wealth for anything else. So the biblical principle here is that everything that you have and everything that you get, material wealth, is a blessing from God. You might be thinking, I wish you'd give me more, right? I don't know, but you get what I'm saying, it's a joke. But anyway, everything that we get is from God. And so the the biblical principle is to say right off the top, I'm going to recognize that he is the giver of these things. Uh, the Old Testament it was a tenth that they asked to give uh, that that they were kind of required to give and it was a way of ensuring that the tribe of Levi was free from working or owning land The, the tribe of Levi the priests were actually they weren't allowed to own land and they weren't supposed to work land instead they were supposed to receive a tenth from the rest of the tribes so that they were free for their priestly duties now the question many people will ask is this a requirement of Christians today and my answer is no you're not required to give a 10th. It's not a biblical requirement. What is a biblical requirement is for you to say, God, I thank you and I recognize you as the giver of all. And there's two attitudes in giving. How much can I keep? And how much can I give? And the question you want to be asking God is not how much can I keep, but God, how much can I give? And there's a very famous preacher, uh, from from England and when he was roughly 22 years old he was receiving a salary and he realized that his salary at 22 years old provided everything that he needed with just a teeny little bit left over and the teeny bit left over he gave he gave away and he told God I realize I can live on let's say in today's world I can live on $40,000 everything that I make over that I'm going to give away." And that's what he did until he was an old man and passed away. Everything that he made over his basic need, he chose to give away, because that's what God led him to do. So go and do the same. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that's what God led him to do. And so the, the question for you is, have you had this conversation with God? God, I thank you for blessing me. You've given me a job, you've provided everything that I need, and then some, because I'm an American and we always have and then some in America. And so, God, what, what do you want me to do with the extra? Um, How can I use it as a blessing for others? And so that's kind of the question that you want to ask yourself in this situation. Um, If anybody demands that you give a tenth or tell you they want to look at your bank accounts, and if you're not giving a tenth, boy, run away from that guy. Um, Because that's not what the scriptures are leading us to. So anyway, that's the giving of a tenth, but that's really not what this passage is about. It's more about this priesthood. He says, but the one without lineage collected a tenth from Abraham, talking about Melchizedek collecting a tenth from Abraham, and blessed the one who had the promises. This is an interesting thing. Genesis chapter 12, uh, God blesses Abraham and he makes the the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant with him that he's going to make him have descendants more than the stars he's going to have land that is flowing with milk and honey and that he is going to be a blessing to all of the nations through him he's going to be a blessing through all the nations he gets land seed and blessing Genesis chapter 14 Abraham has an opportunity to pay allegiance to the king of Sodom and receive material wealth to make this deal with darkness and he rejects it. He makes an oath and he says, I won't even take the, I won't take a a strand. I don't even want a piece of thread from you, right? I don't want anything to do with darkness. And then Genesis chapter 15, God shows up and he reiterates the covenant and makes it stronger with Abraham. So Abraham is taking steps of faith and trusting God. God is blessing all the way. And that's what you, wanna, you and I want to be doing. God is blessing. I'm responding in faith. God is promising. I'm responding in faith. That's, that's what we're called, the walk that we're called to. He says, Without a doubt, verse 7, the inferior blessed the superior, saying that something that would have been shocking to the Jewish ear that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. In one case, men who will die receive a tenth. In the other case, the Scripture testifies that he, Melchizedek, lives. In a sense, Levi himself, who receives a tenth, has paid a tenth through Abraham, for he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Uh, Let me explain that. The emphasis here is that the the inferior and the superior, the old priesthood under Aaron ended at death, was hereditary, Abraham was the great-grandfather of Levi. That's what he's saying, Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, therefore Levi did. Um, That's that's the argument at the end there, and still deserved a tenth. More so, Abraham's tithe to Melchizedek demonstrates that, I should, how, not who, but how Levi is lesser how much greater is the priesthood of Melchizedek that is perfected in Christ? Again, why go back to Judaism? social, social pressure? And he's essentially saying that's weak. Um, and for us as Christians today in the 21st century, probably none of you are thinking, you know, I could have gone to the synagogue this morning, but I came here. Maybe you are, I don't know. Uh, but most of us aren't being pulled back into Judaism. Most of us are being pulled back into the world around us, and what the world around us is telling us is is things like you can't trust the word of God. It's telling you things like God's definition of righteousness isn't the right definition of righteousness. His ways and his works aren't perfect. His ways and his works are totally imperfect, and instead you should trust in your own human ability. That would be the social pressure. And for you to give into it as a Christian, rather than maintain your faith in Christ, that's weak. Rather than being steadfast with him and holding on to him, abiding in Christ, he's saying saying that's weak. And so do you need a priest? Do I need a priest? So we talk about the holiness of God. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4. I've mentioned this several times. God is perfect in his works and his ways. Do you know anybody like that? Where you go, everything that he does is perfect and all of his patterns of life are perfect. You know anybody like that? I don't. I know I'm not like that. But I do know that through the seriousness of sin, Matthew chapter 18, woe to the person of offense, the person who lives in a pattern of offense towards God, who continually rejects God and leads others to do the same. He says, woe to that person. The end is not going to be good. Instead, I know that I need someone to make atonement for me. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we see that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. That when Christ went to the cross and he died up there for us, our sins were in his body so that they would be removed from us and there would no longer be a penalty. It was paid in full. Through that, Ephesians 2, 13, I've been brought near by the blood of Christ. My proximity to God was once far off because of sin, but by the blood of Christ, I've been brought near. As we saw in the last chapter, Jesus has anchored us in the very sanctuary of God. He's placed us inside his family. And in the process, he's transferring his holiness to us. First Peter quoting Isaiah says, be holy because I am holy. The idea is that if you live in close proximity to God, his ways and his works will rub off on you. It's what he's going to do. He's gonna, he's gonna cause you to live in a different way, through discipline and through love and, and through tenderness, but also through a hand that, that guides and, and maybe twist your arm when it needs to be twisted. That's actually something that, that I, I often struggle with is that many Christians' view of discipline is so weak. Uh, you think that God would never do anything to twist your arm and get you moving. You think that he would never, never have a difficult thing to say to you? That it's always just flowers and roses and candy? I don't know what Bible you're reading. (laughs) Certainly, he is wonderful and he is gracious and he is kind. But out of his love, very often, he moves us in ways we wouldn't choose. And that's a blessing in every way. He meets all of our needs. And when he meets our needs, here's what you need to understand. When he meets our needs, the point of meeting our needs is so that we will excel in good works. That's the point. He's caring for us and blessing us and guiding us and disciplining us, and he's doing all of these things in order that we would excel in good works that his holiness rubs off on us and then is, is through his Holy Spirit lived out of us. And so you might go, do I need a priest? Boy, well, I never really thought about it. The, the holiness of God, that God is perfect in all of his works and ways, have you ever doubted that? Have you ever looked at the Bible and gone, <laughs> He's perfect in all of his works and all of his ways. And then you read some of those stories and you go, I don't know, that sounds, that sounds kind of rough. There's a book that just came out recently. And this guy was a, a, a pastor of a church in Texas. He was raised in the church. He felt a call to follow God at about 16 years old. And his, by the time he was in his 20s, he's leading a church in Texas. He's in his, in his late 40s, early 50s now. And he just came out with a book that is uh, Leaving Jesus. And and his it's his story of how he was raised up in the church, and he he believed all these things He taught all these things, but what he saw was these inconsistencies in Christians He saw these places where Christians were doing things that he identified as not of Christ and some of them weren't And so every time that he saw that he began to question God his his eyes were on the works of people rather than the person of God And it caused him to doubt his faith He also shares that one of the things that caused him to run away from the church and run away from Jesus was that every time he expressed a doubt, somebody in the church told him he wasn't allowed to do it. That is not right. If you have doubts about God, you have questions about God, he, run, run, ask him. There's no question you can't ask God. There's, there's, no, there's no doubt that he, he can't handle you expressing to him. And if anybody tells you that you can't express your doubts about God, that you just got to sweep them under the rug and cover them up and hope they go away, no. You need to dig into those. Because we want to know, we want to have an appetite for his works and his ways. And sometimes his works and his ways, because his ways are not my ways, they're unappetizing to me. But what I want to learn to do is love what God loves. So that means I have to understand and trust so never run away from your doubts in God but instead dig into those ask questions learn about him have an appetite for his holiness if you've never confessed your sin if you've never said God I need forgiveness I pray that today is the day that you do that Say, God I need forgiveness sin is a serious thing I don't want to live in offense to you and, and I've been making these deals with darkness. I've been making these deals with the world. I've been making these deals with religion. How are they working out for you? Are you experiencing peace? No, it's because you need forgiveness. You need righteousness. And once you've made that decision to express your need of forgiveness for God and thank Jesus for bearing his, your sins on the cross and, and that his blood has brought you near to God, he's going he's to cause you to live a new way. And so maybe today is your day of salvation. You say, God, today is the first time I say, I need forgiveness. I thank you that you've given it to me on the cross of Jesus Christ. I thank you that he bore my sins in his body. I thank you that you've given me new life. I want to I trust you. As Abraham did, not knowing everything, but step-by-step trusting you more and more. He'll cause you to live in new ways, and then you'll be a blessing as he meets your needs. Let me pray. Father, this morning we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your holiness, that your works and your ways are perfect. What you do and the patterns that you follow, the promises that you have made are perfect. Father, I pray for anyone here this morning that has doubts about that, that they would dig into the doubt. That <coughs> they wouldn't sweep it under the rug. That they would seek out somebody and, and through, through that relationship with another believer uh, that they would dig into the scriptures and know you more, have their questions answered. You're a good God. You, you developed us with, with an intellect and, and you don't want us to neglect it but instead to dig into you. Father I pray for the person here this morning That that, that takes sin lightly That thinks that sin is not that big a deal And they're making They're making They're making the choice to be united To the world around them rather than to You through what you've done for us I, I pray that they would repent of that They confess it is wrong I thank you that you've taken our sins on your body on the cross and we've been cared for, atoned for, made right and justified. I thank you that you brought us near and we're your children. God, if somebody's feeling far off from God today, may they hear that truth. By the blood of Jesus Christ, they've been brought near to you. Pray that they would trust in your sacrifice. God, transfer your holiness to us as we're close to you and then cause us to live as a blessing to those around us, excelling in good works. Excelling in, in caring for those who need care. and Excelling in, in justice. Excelling in spotting sin and calling it what it is. Excelling in, in reconciled relationships. Excelling in proclaiming the good news. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.